Today, ladies and gentlemen, here at Holy Week, we come to the end of our pilgrimage of faith through all of these wonderful relics that we are going to have at the future Our Lady of the Angels Chapel, which we will start construction uh, after Easter on April 5th. Glory to God. This is going to be amazing. Today, we are going to reveal the final and most important relic that we have in our arsenal, in the armory of God that is going to be this chapel. Now, I want you to understand this. We said this, 26 saint relics with 27 relics. This last relic, we do not have a bio written about, but rather it is the great story of the finding and the preservation of the true cross of Jesus Christ. This is the story that we're going to tell today of Roman crucifixion, the crucifixion of Christ, and finally, how do we know that we have the true cross? Because, I don't know if you know this, but in the Middle Ages, everyone was selling pieces of the true cross and make a quick buck. How do we know that that is what we have? Stay tuned as we walk down this final Relic Reveal video together. The history of Roman crucifixion is a brutal and sick, demented history. So in the Persian Empire, what they would do was they would impale people on stakes. You sharpen one end, you stick the other end to the ground, and you drop a body on top, usually impaling them through the abdomen or other parts. Horrific, I know. And what they would do is that person would eventually bleed out. And what the Romans realize is if you did the same thing, if you dropped them on a stake, but in, instead of impaling them, you impaled their hands to a crossbeam, that person wouldn't just bleed out in 24 hours. You could stretch it out over seven days until eventually thirst, madness, hunger, the wild animals snacking on them, all those things could combine to kill the victim, but you could prolong the torment as long as possible. When we recovered the artwork of uh, Roman mythology, Prometheus and Andromeda, these two people who were... Uh, you know, punished by the gods, they were called in the inscriptions on the on the artwork. It was called the crucis, even though there was no visible cross like we see. One was to a rock, the other one was two stakes. But the idea of the word crooks, where we get the word cross, comes from the word crucis, which means to torment or to torture. So when the Romans were developing and refining with scientific accuracy the pain and torture of crucifixion, they knew exactly what they were doing. They weren't here to punish; they were here. To destroy. Now, in Roman law, the original practice of the punishment of crucifixion was known as the punishment of slaves. It was reserved for slaves who disobeyed their masters in serious areas. Now, eventually, this thing would go from the servilus, the slaves, into the humiliores, which means the poor. Now, it's funny because in Roman law, it was absolutely forbidden to crucify a Roman citizen. Absolutely. In fact, one governor did it, and then another governor found out and had him beheaded for the crime of killing a Roman citizen by crucifixion. But the humiliores, or the poorest of the poor, the lowliest class, even though they were technically Roman citizens, could also be crucified after a while. And it wasn't just slaves. Eventually, you would become brigands and criminals, and ultimately those engaged in traitorous or seditious activity. All sorts of crimes as long as you weren't a high-class Roman citizen, could be punished in this capital level with a crucifixion. So how did the Romans do it? Well, the one condemned would first be scourged. A scourge is they would have a, a flagrum, a cat of nine tails. It was a whip that had a bunch of strands off of it. And at the end of the strands were bits of bone or metal or hooks called scorpiones, scorpion tails, uh, fish hooks, 
things with weight to them, with spikes on them, so that when you would hit the person with one whipping action, nine or so whips would actually hit them and dig into their flesh. It is gruesome. It is horrible. And that took place before they were crucified. Then the individual would usually take the transverse beam on their shoulders and be stripped naked and forced to carry it throughout the town or city. And then to the spot where they would be crucified would usually be just outside the city. And there was probably an area reserved for the condemned. So what they would do is they would carry this typically with the titleus, the, the um, inscription of their name and their crime around their neck. And then when they got to the spot where they were going to be crucified, the stipes, the spike was already there. So then they would take the person and with cords, lift them up onto that spiked cross. Then they would nail in with four nails, their hands and their feet. And then what they would do was they would hang them on the arbor in Felix, the unhappy tree. And, uh, and then above that titleist that was hung around their necks would now be placed above them uh, on the cross so that everyone would see why they were being killed. Now, it wasn't just slaves and the lowly poor. It was people who were outside the normal Roman Empire. In fact, on the outskirts of the empire, crucifixions were much more common. In fact, mass crucifixions were much more common because it was a way to cower the populace, right? That's the goal, to humiliate the populace. You want to revolt against the might of Rome? Look at all these people who tried and failed. Think again. We also know from Roman sources, like the philosopher Cicero and Livy and Horace, all of these people who witnessed crucifixions, that sometimes the blasphemies and the madness and the curses were so intense by the person crucified that they would literally cut out their tongue to prevent them from uttering blasphemies against the gods. Finally, most Roman crucifixions were done very low to the ground so that after the people witnessed the, the actual nailing to the cross and all that and would go away, the wild animals could then come and have their way with their feet, legs, toes. It was horrific. It was a true act of terror. Now we take this Roman tool of oppression and we see how it happened in the first century in a district of Rome called Judea. Jesus Christ, before he was given up to death, was betrayed by the chief priests because they did not just want Jesus out of the way. He wasn't just a guy that they were trying to get rid of. They wanted to discredit his messianic mission. So what did they do? They needed the Romans to kill him because every time the Romans occupied a culture, they did not allow that culture to have the final say of capital punishment. Only the Romans could do it, which is why the story of the woman caught in adultery was such a conundrum. Because it's like, do we live by Moses' law or Rome's law? You tell us, Messiah figure, right? That was the whole point. So the religious leaders go to Pilate and say, this man is causing sedition. He's rebelling against Rome and causing a tumult. He's about to start a riot. You need to take him out. And he knew that they were envious. And he's like, why do you want me to do this? I'm not a part of your little squabble. Why do you want me to do this? And they demanded it. They said, he's trying to make himself a king over and against Caesar. And if someone tries to make themselves a king, you're no friend of Caesar. So right now he knew the political game that they were playing with Pontius Pilate. Now, why did they want to do it? In the book of Deuteronomy, it says, cursed be any man who hangs from a tree. It's a very intense passage, but one that is referenced over and over again in the Bible, in the New Testament specifically. So they're trying to discredit Jesus's claim to be the Messiah. When in fact, the church writers would take this, Peter and Paul especially, and they would develop this theme within the context of the redemption. Yes, he was a curse. Yes, he took the curse of the law onto himself and the curse of sin and death onto himself so that he could pay the price and free us from the curse of sin and the law. 
That's the whole point of what Jesus did. In fact, one of the first sermons in Acts chapter 5, St. Peter says, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus, this one whom you hung from a tree. Three times in Acts of the Apostles, Peter and Paul reference the cross as the tree. Paul in Galatians chapter 3 does the same, saying he took upon himself the curse of the law. He was a curse. That's the point of the cross, of being hung from that unhappy tree. And so when you look at the story of Christ, you actually find in that history of Roman crucifixions a beautiful deepening of what Christ was doing when he died for us, right? So in Philippians chapter 2, there's the beautiful hymn of St. Paul where he said, though he was in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being found human in appearance. And then scripture says that he subjected himself to obedience, yes, even death on a cross. And the beautiful thing about what Christ did for us on that cross, I think we can learn about four lessons. Number one, it is the arbor in Felix. It is the unhappy tree, right? We already saw how Paul and Peter used it, but also we need to look with the eyes of faith all the way back to Adam in the garden of the two trees. They entered into a covenant relationship with the devil, broke their covenant with God by going up to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of death. Jesus, by embracing the cross, this unhappy tree, converted it because he's God, transformed it into the tree of life by which you and I can now have eternal life. We can also look at the fact that Jesus emptied himself, being God, he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, right? And we see how the crucifixion was literally called in Roman law, the punishment of slaves, and how the first group of Roman citizens that were uh, made eligible for crucifixion were the humiliores, the lowly of the earth, the poor of spirit, basically, in the Roman Empire. The idea of the titleists, right, the, the title board that was hung around Christ's neck and over his head said the phrase, Jesus Nazarethus Rex Judeum. What does that mean? Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. The irony, not only that God would use the unhappy tree and turn it into the tree of life, but that he would use this inscription of mockery, right? Remember, the Roman soldiers threw a military cloak over him, put a crown of thorns on him and said, all hail, King of the Jews. They were trying to humiliate him. You think your people have power. You have nothing compared to Rome. And here, the Roman governor hung that sign over Jesus's head, proclaiming the truth, ironically, of who Jesus Christ actually was, and that by which Christ would become the king over Israel and to the ends of the earth. That, that power, the power of the cross, which would ultimately unseat even the Caesars of Rome and their false gods, and take over the Roman Empire, not with bullets, but with the cross, with the blood shed, not of enemies fighting in combat, but with the cross of Jesus Christ and by his most precious blood shed that we could have life eternal. The beautiful thing, brothers and sisters, is the conversion of the very monster that destroyed our Savior, Jesus Christ, would become this movement that would fill the whole earth. That's what the word Catholic means. It means worldwide, according to the whole. And so the final and fourth point that I want to talk about is, remember when I said that when they would crucify people, typically they would crucify them very low to the ground, right? That's also so that people could assault them and yell at them and get right in their face and scream at them. They would be powerless, powerless to do anything. But every so often we find in Roman history that they would raise people really high on the cross when they wanted them to be an example to everyone. One Roman governor one time painted a cross brilliantly white. In those days, paint being a very difficult thing to make something brilliantly white. He painted a cross, an instrument of torture, brilliantly white, 
and then made it really, really tall. Like, I don't know, it was like 10 or 15 meters tall, whereas typically they were three to four. And he hung this man on there so that everyone would know this is a giant signpost. Do not cross me. So this is why in Christian art, the idea of the two thieves being crucified along with Christ, they are lower, Christ is in the center, and he's much higher. In fact, Christ himself would reference this when he said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. Not just his fellow co-religionists, his fellow Jews, but all men to himself. This is the beautiful irony where God takes the evilness, the sinfulness, the God-forsakenness that we heap at one another, man's hatred of his fellow man, man's hatred of God, man's idolatry of the self, and God can, to use a cliche, write straight with our crooked lines. And all of the things that they did to humiliate him, Jesus Christ built up into the very act of our redemption that would convert the very empire that killed him. So what happened to that cross? Well, eventually... There would be uh, the three crosses from the crucifixion that day. They would be typically discarded into a pit. Sometimes the nails would be removed and reused over and over again, because you can imagine back then, hard to produce nails, not like you can go down to the hardware store. But the story goes that after the last Jewish revolution, uh, where they tried to usurp the power of Rome, all Jews were banished from the Holy Land in like the five or the 150s, like done. They were gone. They renamed the province from Judea to Syria, Palestina in Latin, Palestine, so we get the term Palestine. And so what they did was they expelled all the Jews from the Holy Land for literally centuries, that edict held. What happened was the place of the Holy Sepulcher that we now know today as the site of the crucifixion and the burial mounds where the crosses were kept afterwards, um, eventually they dumped a ton of dirt. They, they gathered a ton of dirt and dumped it on there and began building pagan temples all in that area to add further humility to the Jews. And eventually what happened is an irony of history. Again, I'm using that word irony because that dumping of dirt and those building those things actually safeguarded that spot that in about 300 years later or 200 years later, Constantine, the Roman emperor, his mother at 80 years old, St. Helena, would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And as she was going along the way, she would found church after church after church, giving money to the poor, helping out people all along the way, doing these acts of Christian charity until she finally connects with the bishop of Jerusalem and they begin excavation. They tore down the pagan buildings, they removed them, and then they began removing all this dirt. Now, the legend has it that right after the crucifixion, shortly thereafter, a group of anti-Christian Jews hid the cross so that Christians wouldn't find it, wouldn't venerate it, wouldn't, you know, whatever, point to it in the uh, evidence for their faith. But eventually, this tradition was passed down to a man named Judas. And I find this fascinating. A guy named Judas had a vision, some sort of divine inspiration to go to St. Helena, who also received a vision that she would be the one to find the true cross. And he went and he pointed out the exact spot where he believed that his ancestors had hid the cross. So they dig it up. They find three crosses. Now, here's where legend kind of goes a little wonky on us, right? There's one tradition that says there are three crosses, but they found the, the titleists over one of them. Another tradition says that they found a dead Christian man, a righteous Christian man who had died. They put him next to the cross and touched it, and he came to life. And then the third and probably most stable tradition, which I believe comes to us directly from St. Cyril of Jerusalem, who writes this whole account 20 years after it happened. He was the bishop. He tells that there was a, a righteous Christian woman who was near death. She touched the first cross, nothing. The second cross, nothing. When she touched the third cross, she was miraculously healed. So that became eventually... To make a long story short, 
that would start a whole wave of popularity surrounded. We're talking feast days in the liturgical calendar in both Jerusalem and Constantinople, things happening immediately. Within, that was probably about 329-ish. Within 30 years, we have evidence all throughout North Africa of festivals celebrating the True Cross and reliquaries of the True Cross. In fact, French archaeologists would dig up and find inscriptions going back to 359 of a collection of relics, and in it, it says the sacred wood of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people are skeptics, right? Uh, John Calvin famously said, if we were to take up all the relics of the true cross, it would be like basically like a battleship, a, a huge ship. It would be so many pieces. And it was kind of funny because there were shady people in the Middle Ages willing to sell to any gullible believer, like, oh, I got a relic of St. Catherine. I got a relic of the apostles. I got a relic of the true cross. You could imagine how uh, tempting that would be in those era. But we actually find that in the 350s, in the 400s, and in the 500s, ample evidence that men and women would have atoms, that's what they call it, it's tiny little slivers of the true cross that was kept in Jerusalem and in Constantinople. They would have it and they'd put them in gold reliquaries that they would wear around their necks. Larger pieces, splinters, so not really that big, would be kept in gold reliquaries and they would find their way to churches all over the place that within a hundred years, uh, some of the church fathers would say the whole Christian world is filled with relics of the true cross. Well, what happened is one Eastern Roman emperor would send a Pope here in the West would send him a large chunk of the true cross and pieces of that would then be disseminated. Uh, 150 years later, this one pope found the earliest and largest jeweled reliquary of the true cross that po uh, that the emperor Justin II had sent uh, a previous pope, Pope Gregory I, Gregory the Great. He had sent elements of the true cross, including one nail that was given to him from the Eastern Empire. He sent that to the Lombard kings and it was melted. This is just kind of crazy. It was melted into the iron crown of Lombardy. The Spanish king, the first Catholic king of Spain, also had a relic of the true cross sent to him by St. Gregory. So when we start looking at the, the legends of the true cross, yes, there were a lot of fakes and forgeries, but the reality is the true cross was venerated within 100 years all throughout the Eastern and Western Empire. Now, back to the, the skeptics claim that if you were to add up all the pieces of the true cross, quote, quote unquote, it would be something that would be like the size of a battleship or something like that. Now think about this. In 1889, a French scientist had cataloged all the known places that claimed to have a relic of the true cross. He added them all together. He did the size. People had already been doing tests on them, and they all were coming across as from pine wood, which is very important. And so they thought, okay, if you were to look at the cross and estimate it's about three to four meters high, it would be 178 million cubic millimeters of pine wood, okay? So that's how much it would take to fill up the idea of a three to four meter cross. After you add, he cataloged it all, added it all up, it would be about four million cubic millimeters. So we haven't even got to a third. We're barely at, we're like, like a 10th of all the material that would go into the true cross. A lot was lost from decay and all these things. So do we, can we trust that this relic coming to St. Anthony of Padua is a relic of the true cross? We can at least trace it all the way back to 329. That's the glorious thing about what happened. They began sending this throughout the Christian world because they believed and they venerated this relic more than any other. In fact, the Second Council of Nicaea, 787, would say that of all the relics that belongs to Holy Mother Church, the highest regarded relic is the relic of the true cross. 
And so, brothers and sisters, we are going to be able to venerate this relic of the true cross, the symbol and the very instrument by which Jesus Christ brought about our salvation. This is the tree, the unhappy tree that he transformed into the tree of life. So just as uh, in the garden, if you lay hold of the fruit of the tree of life, you live forever. Brothers and sisters, I'm inviting you right now, wherever you are, however you're listening to this, wherever you are in your faith, I invite you right now to make an act of faith in Jesus Christ, to come before him who is the fruit of the tree of life, who was pinned to the tree of death but transformed it into that which saves us. For us to look at the wondrous cross of Jesus Christ and find in the very center of the cross of Christ his passionate love for you and me. That sin is not bigger than God's love. That your individual sins, no individual sin that you have ever committed can keep you away from the love of God if only you will give them over to him. Let this relic of the true cross be for you a sign and testament of God's unfailing love for you. Because the resurrection is real, brothers and sisters. And on the third day, Jesus Christ triumphed over sin, death, darkness, and the devil. He despoiled the uh, the dark powers that think they're in control of all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus Christ reasserted the kingship of the house of David. Jesus Christ reasserted his lordship over all things. He said on his resurrection, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Brothers and sisters, we see that in the cross we have our salvation because the savior of the world hung on that cross became a curse for us so that we might be freed from all curses of sin death and darkness and find freedom brothers and sisters during this holy week i hope this message and the promise that we are going to get a relic of the true cross can spur you on to christian holiness jesus christ is the leader and perfecter or pioneer of faith he went before us so that we can follow after him that we can take up our crosses and follow him Jesus Christ bore the curse so that you and I would be free. I just hope that this week, that through the building of the Our Lady of the Angels Chapel, through the reliquary and the honoring of the saints and the veneration of sacred relics, that you can learn to detach yourself from all that clings so that you can follow Christ and follow him all the way to heaven. May God bless you. And this has been a fun journey together, a great pilgrimage of faith through the relics of Our Lady of the Angels Chapel. God bless you all.